I believe everyone has a story to share. I'm on a journey to discover the magic inside each person's story. Each week, I will introduce you to guests where I will dig deep and uncover the beautiful miracles from life and experiences to inspire and encourage you to live life to the fullest. My goal is to give each guest a platform to share their lives with the world in hopes that someone will be inspired to take action and live life with passion and purpose. Welcome to the Uncover Your Magic podcast with me, Ashley Goner. Are you ready? Here we go. Welcome back to Uncover Your Magic. I hope you are enjoying everything, all the traditions of this Christmas holiday and or whatever holiday you are celebrating. I just, this is my favorite time of year, especially with my girls and the traditions that we've created. And, you know, as I get older, I see the traditions that we've created that they love and they count on. And it's just so fun to witness and be part of. And I know parents out there that can relate to me. It's just that magic in this time of year, even as old as they are. I used to see my friends that had the older kids and think, oh, I just don't want the the Santa to end. And I just, you know, it's like you you keep wanting to prolong that and it's still so special. And whatever traditions you have, just be so in the moment, be so present. It's just such a special time and to understand the the meaning and the, you know, whatever meaning you give it is just so, so, so special. So I just am wishing you all an amazing week of magic and a time together as a family that you have memories and create special times together. It's so important. Well, today's episode is with this amazing man. His name is Dr. Richard Dixie. He wrote a book called Three Minutes a Day, and it's about meditation. And he had connected with me and sent me the book. And I'm like, three minutes a day for meditation. Wow, I can do that. And I'm pretty good about it. I do different things. I mean, I look at my walk as meditation. I listen to like either megahertz or if you've listened to David Wong's episode, I listen to those and I do my automatic writing. A lot of things, I'm not a big time lay on the bed, you know, for half an hour to an hour meditator, which that would be one of my things that I'm reaching for. But what I do now works. And, you know, my automatic writing is powerful, especially when I put those, whatever sound I'm listening to. And it just, I can write like seven to eight pages in like 10 minutes. I mean, even more, but it's just amazing to see what comes through. And when you do automatic writing, and I know most of you who I know that have connected with me that also automatic write, it's just like you have this team and this team's helping you in the day. And you know, every day, if I don't have that connection with my writing, it seems so empty. So I have this, I mean, I talk to my angels, my guys, my, I talk, call them my spirit team, my dad, my grandma, everybody. Like, but we just, we have this amazing connection and it's so powerful. 
and my life would be so empty if I didn't have that time. When I started reading Dr. Richard Dixie's book, The Three Minutes a Day, it's so cool how he, he's a professor at um, Berkeley and he, it's just so simple. And I think people look at meditation as it has to be. It's like, oh, I need to figure out how to lay there and what to listen to and how to calm my, my mind and, you know, think nothing and listen to my breath. I mean, we've done it all, right? All the, the headspace, the, I go on YouTube and, you know, try to listen to some self-guided meditation, but it, it doesn't have to be like that. And this is what, why I wanted to bring him on because for those of you that don't, meditate. I mean, Richard doesn't meditate. He doesn't. And I thought, well, if anything, maybe Richard will get something from three minutes a day from Richard Dixie. But, you know, I've I've taught the girls when they were little, we used to do, if you have, I probably mentioned this before, but you go on Alexa and it's three minute, um, it's tea house meditations. And they did that when they were little, I would shut the door and we would, I would ask Alexa, play tea house meditations and then they would pick which one they would want and then they would lay there and meditate and it was more you know of a way for me to start you know adding that into their life and understanding the importance of that and they understand meditation but it is something unless you have it as your you know routine and you know how it is but I think this book, Richard Dixie's book, Three Minutes a Day, is really cool. And we talk about it and we talk about his life. And he has such a fascinating life. Let me give you what his bio says. Richard Dixie is a PhD, is a scientist and lifelong student of Asian philosophy. He runs the Light of Buddha Dharma Foundation in India with his wife, Wagmo. She is the eldest daughter of Tibetan Lama. Tarthang Tulka. He is a senior facility faculty member at Dharma College in Berkeley and divides his time between California and India. And his book, I'll give you a little like summary. Three minutes a day makes a bold claim. In just three minutes a day for 14 weeks, less than five hours total, you can generate real insight into personal experience that no amount of reading or learning can replicate. While meditation is known for promoting balance and well-being in our busy lives, it's typical, typically associated with long periods of sitting. Dr. Richard Dixie presents a different approach, one that uses short exercises to stabilize mental experience. He lays out a direct path to clarity of mind, stress relief, sharper thinking, improved concentration, and enhanced creativity that can be followed from anywhere, no matter how busy your schedule. If you're one of the millions of people interested in meditation, but short on time, three minutes a day is the perfect way to learn this valuable practice and incorporate it into your everyday life. So I think for anyone, the big time meditators are the ones that can't figure out how to do it yet. I think this book is perfect. You will love his way of talking and his philosophy. And oh, he's so deep and he just knows so much. He's like a, I mean, just to know that he's married to the daughter of the Tibetan Lama, Tarthong Tulka, is amazing. And they have children, they're in college. It was a really fun conversation. And what the one thing I want to point out is he talks a lot about 
the limiting beliefs. And you'll get what I'm saying when you listen to this and all those, my whole tribe that we've gone through all the Joshua stuff. It's such a cool way of looking at this. So all of you that always reach out to me after you listen to an episode that I know we're all on the same path, listen to how he explains it because it's so cool. You'll really enjoy it. Such a different way of looking at it. And let's see, we are close to Christmas and I wish you all that Merry Christmas. And we will just be home and enjoying this time together and cherishing the moments. And remember to, I'm not having my January 1st call of the Monday, the our group. So check in on February 5th. We will have it then. Connect with me if you don't have the Zoom link. Again, the one that I've given everyone that comes is the same one. So you won't need to ask me for another one. It's the same one. And if you are still interested in the retreat, I'm not sure if there's anything available, but please reach out. Like there's, you never know. There's always magic <laughs> if you're interested. And without further ado, I just am excited for you to meet Dr. Richard Dixie. So enjoy the show. Welcome, Richard. Hi. Hi. Oh, so nice to meet you. Yeah. I have been reading your book and going down your life path and learning about you the last few days. And, you know, you wrote a book on three minutes a day on meditation. And I'm a huge believer in meditation. And I have told you just before we hit record how I think it's so important to instill that in these youth. In the, I mean, I think that should be part of kindergarten. <laughs> and I see a school one day that I will, will create that will have meditation and all of the things I believe are so important in the world that we are living in these days. However, when I hear three minutes a day, you know, that kind of gets people excited because I think one thing about meditation is they think it's this long drawn out thing where they have to lay down or sit on a cushion or try to figure out how to calm your mind. But when you, when you create a book, when you write a book with a three minute, it kind of like gets people like, oh, well, maybe I can do that. <laughs> maybe I'll figure out how to lay there for three minutes or sit there or look out the window, look at a candle. But I've really enjoyed the, how you design the book. And I want people to understand why you did the book and where you come from, because I think your background is so fascinating and, you know, learning about who you married, why you went to all these different stories of your life. And now knowing that you did crew in high school, like I, (laughs) now I learned something new. So let's start wherever you want. And then we'll kind of get into meditation and why and all the fun things about Richard Dixie. Great. Well, that's such a nice introduction. Well, you know, I mean, every life is a journey. My journey has been a busy one because I was brought up and educated as a scientist in, I think you might say, the heroic period of science in the 60s, when, you know, DNA had been discovered and there was a lot of excitement about science discovering everything. And, you know, as a teenager, and then you remember 2001, A Space Odyssey, and this thing turns up, this sort of, <laughs> it was like a, some sort of block. And right. it's 
everything is like it's and you know the cavemen look at it and, well okay so i was brought up in that way but i began to realize in my late teens that there was something wrong with this exclusive idea that our scientific and technological techniques were going to explain everything Mm-hmm. And I remember at Oxford, you know, I studied biochemistry and I forget if I put this story in my book, but anyway, my Don at Oxford, you get a tutor, good Don. Okay. We hate okay. each other cordially. Anyway, so this guy, mm-hmm. he sits down one day, he goes, Dixie, within 200 years, science will have explained everything. And I remember going, you're just an idiot. You, 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 you <laughs> just don't guess. That that's not possible. I didn't know why it wasn't possible, but I knew it wasn't possible. And that set me off on a quest. And I went to India because I realized uh, through a bunch of coincidences that the Indian culture retained something valuable. And I, you know, met yogis and hung out with sadhus and did all kinds of things. I came back, I finished my degree. I, I actually started an esoteric school. I became the director of an esoteric school. I was teaching astrology and tarot and auras and all that stuff back in the 70s. Actually, the school I joined originally was started by someone else. I became its director and he was still there as a sort of chairman. And I began to realize some of it he was making up. It was all completely true. And this kind of got me a little bit upset. And I I thought, I need to take my science and make sense of this. You know, this, okay, I get it now. Let's, let's make, make this work. So I got very, very lucky. I was actually hired to run a laboratory in a major London teaching hospital. These are really prestigious. This was St. Bartholomew's Hospital, one of the oldest hospitals in the world hmm. um, in London, in central London, to research faith healing. I'll take my scientific training and I'll research faith healing. Well, of course, it's not possible. As I'd intuited before, it wasn't possible. I tried, I didn't really work. I couldn't make, really make it work. And there were reasons for that, which we can go into in another podcast. But anyway, and then I landed up at the end researching the biological effects of electromagnetic fields and became a very well-known lab. And we were doing interesting work in electromagnetic medicine. And then at the end of that period, I was coming up to the end of my scientific career, really. And a colleague of mine was working in pediatric leukemia. And he said, you know, these Chinese medicines, they really work. And I thought, wow, that's it. I'll take my knowledge of science and we'll do clinical trials on traditional medicines. Mm -hmm. And we did. We did definitive clinical studies on Chinese medicines for expert. And they worked. We did a double-blind placebo-controlled crossover study. I mean, the most rigorous clinical trial you can make. And as a result of that study, the biotech company trying to develop these medicines as pharmaceuticals. And I did that for a long time, as chief executive in London and all that. But time in the back of my mind, there was this feeling, you know, I haven't really squared this circle. Somehow there's still an internal world of meaning and values, and then there's this external world of proof, and they didn't kind of come together. How are they going to come together? Well, all the time in my background, there was this meditation thing. But it was only in the early 90s that I really met a solid meditation master. And when I did, I was amazed what I met because I suddenly realized there was an unbroken two and a half thousand year tradition 
that was still intact in Asia. Unfortunately, all of our Western lineages are broken. They're all broken, intact. This guy could go, I know who my teacher is, bam, boom, 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 more names, <laughs> all the way back, no wow. break. <laughs> and you think, wow, huh. what is this? Well, shortly after, about five or six years after that, I met my wonderful wife, Wang Mo, who is the eldest daughter of a Tibetan teacher, a lama, who was trained in Tibet. There are very few of them left now, maybe 10, maybe even fewer than that even. He's old, he's 19. And we decided to come to America to live here and educate our kids here. And we started a college called Dharma College. And the mission of the college was to try to express these Asian meditation traditions in modern language. Because what I began to realize was that cognitive psychology and neurophysiology were generating insights using scientific methods that were merely confirming what was written in books 2,000 years ago by meditators. Mm. Oh, this is so interesting. So these meditators were able to look at their own mental states and make valid statements without any scientific techniques at all, and now we're getting it confirmed. And this is not to say that science is ever going to tell you how to meditate, but it does show you that actually there's something in this meditation thing which is absolutely the case. So what is the case that meditation is addressing? And this got me to really, you know, thinking about this. And it developed into a courses I gave at Dharma College, and those developed into this book. And it's really very, very simple. All we will ever experience or can ever experience comes from either our five senses or our thoughts and imaginations, the so-called six gates. There is no experience we can have that doesn't come from one of our five senses or our thoughts and imaginations. One can't say this enough. And the reason is because we are educated in the contemporary world, and this is worldwide now, it's not just Western, every country has it, that there is a, quote, external world, which we learn about with science that is real. And we are somehow observers, sort of trivial people, just looking on to this thing somehow. It, nothing could be further from the truth. Everything we know comes from our five senses and our thoughts and imaginations. And this world, the world, the external world, reality, all this language, is an inference we make from our senses and our thoughts and imaginations. We never experience it at all. We merely infer things about it. Right. Now, when I saw that, the penny dropped. Meditation is looking at your experience as experience, not using your experience to say things about the external world or about enlightenment or about anything else, looking at your experience as experience. And that is the complement to our technological culture, where we have all this clever inference, technology, etc., which is talking about the external world. Now, this was a breakthrough for me. And finally, I closed the circle of my life. I finally, oh my gosh, I get it now. <laughs> Both things, they're not the same. They are complements one to another. They're two sides of an egg. 
Now, this really is a very important insight, and it leads to why meditation is so valuable. Because the trouble is, although we make this inference about the external world, a map, it's literally like making a map of the external world, it's not a totally accurate map. In fact, it's a map full of preconceptions. It's a map full of worries. It's a map full of things I want and things I don't. It's a map full of I was successful or I was a failure. It's a map full of personal identity, national identity, politics. It's uh, just endless stuff in this so-called map. As a result, the world I see and the world you see are different. Right. Now, if we don't understand that the world we see is a map, we're going to fight. We're going to disagree at a very fundamental level. And indeed, when you look at the current state of the world, Mm. what you see is people confronted with rapid climate change, with rapid environmental change, with rapid social change, with rapid technological change, and with rapid, you know, basically political change happening. And their maps are not keeping up. Right. And so they're going, oh, I wish it was the good old days. You know, make everything great again. Let's go back into the some mythical past when everything was good. It was all okay. What's gone wrong? There must be some evil conspiracy. All this talk. When actually what's happening is they're not realizing the world they're seeing is being mapped incorrectly by them. Mm-hmm. And so they are confused and angry and alienated. and It's very difficult. So the skill that meditation gives you is to see the map as a map and hence become emotionally resilient because you suddenly go, okay, so the map I've got is being colored up. I'd like to understand how that is. And if I do understand how that is, I won't reflexively react to events as if they are real, which of course is what happens. So one gets interested in this mapping thing. Now, meditation is extraordinarily simple. And like you, I think it should be taught along with reading and writing. It should be RRM, or maybe it's RWM. Read, write, meditate. Mm -hmm. Because all we get are five senses and our thoughts and imaginations. If we are taught how how we use that to make a world, we will always be profoundly confused about the meaning of life. Because in a very real sense, we won't understand our life because we are living in a map. Now, this is a very simple and yet extraordinarily profound observation. Believe me, I have taught now for 12 years this stuff. I've edited books. I've written books. I still have to tell myself this. Because you look out the window and you go, there's a lovely day. There's a, there's the world. No, it's not. It's a map. You've actually created that yourself. You've projected that from yourself. And if you don't understand how you're doing that, you're going to be confused. Now, reactivity is that causes us to be confused. And the reason is because the map is not just a picture. It contains, I want, I don't want. This is good. This is bad. It's got all this judgment in it. And what happens is we react to the judgments in the map. And consequently, we get all confused and riled up. And unfortunately, now with modern technology, our mobile phones, 
are designed to capture our reactivity and exploit it. Mm-hmm. So they're full of highly sticky data that is designed to capture you and get your attention. And then social media, people get locked onto the map making. Am I doing well? Have I got lots of friends? Have I not? All this is literally taking you away from your actuality, which is not a map. So we have to recapture ourselves. We have to recapture our embodiment. Now, to do that, we have to become less reactive. As long as we are reactive, we're being pulled away from ourselves into this display as if it was real. When actually, we made it ourselves. Right. Literally falling in love with our own reflection and losing ourselves in that process. There's a, you know, there's a wonderful Greek myth, the myth of Narcissus. Do you know this myth? No. So profound. This is old knowledge. Narcissus was this extraordinarily beautiful Greek god. He was so beautiful that one day he caught sight of his reflection in a pool of water and fell in love with himself. (laughs) And as a result, he died because he no longer ate and he turned into the Narcissus flower, the Narcissus. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> a really interesting myth, right? It's like, whoa. Oh, Richard. Guys are on the money. Yeah. <laughs> to me, meditation as a basic life skill is the skill to become less reactive through understanding reflexive reactivity or unconscious map making, call it what you like. Right. And to do that, you have to learn to take an element of control over your concentration because our concentration, our attention is what we react to. So if we're living in a map and we don't understand our attention, we get drawn, pulled around by the map. And that's what makes us so frazzled and so emotionally tired and makes us disconnected from ourselves because it's as if we're not in control of our lives in a very deep way. For you, you, Richard Dixie, knowing what you know and what you just explained with the world that it is in right now, and you can focus on that and use your maps, right? What do you do? I know you meditate, obviously, but what do you do to, how does your world like? What does you, I want to know what it looks like in your life. Okay, so having seen this, I've become quite dedicated to wishing to explain in the clearest possible way how we map everything. So I'm a little bit evangelical about it, really. I want to teach, and I teach a lot. I also want to interact and be helpful where I can. And obviously the problem is that if you meet people who don't understand this, then often their lives are predicated on concepts which they have learned, which have been reflected into the world for them, right. which ultimately leave them dissatisfied. Just like you would be very stupid to think you can find a film star in a film in a cinema screen. <laughs> you know, the film star, the guy isn't in the screen. It's a display, guys. Don't look for the guy there. He's not there. You're not going to find him there. Yet so many people are living their lives like that looking for Cary Grant in the TV. 
And Gary Cole's not in the TV. So I found myself, you know, it's, the problem is enormous. It's so deep and it's so pervasive that it's almost overwhelming to realize that unconscious reactivity has been a feature of humanity for almost as long as there's been human history. Mm-hmm. In fact, the, you know, you can read the meditations of Marcus Aurelius written in 150 AD and you meet a guy you could have met yesterday saying exactly what, you know, it's like, what? You mean a Roman emperor in the 150 AD is writing about the human condition as if it was 2023. Oh, wow. There's something profound there about our inability to address our cognitive function. So this recognition has changed me. It has. It's made me more serious at one level, but also wanting to engage and really try to help. Now, I'm a believer in basic human goodness. I don't believe there is genuine evil. There is evil action for certain, but I don't believe there's evil as a force in the world. Right. And the reason I say that is for two reasons. Firstly, as people begin to separate their reactivity from their actuality, as they begin to retake the throne of their being, they get kinder. The trajectory they go toward is not to become more like an animal and more aggressive and all the rest of it, but kinder and kinder and kinder, which makes me go, okay, so the basic human foundation is actually kindness, not aggression. And then I began to research this, and to my absolute amazement, there is hard evidence that this is the case, not soft evidence. For example, there was a recent book written by a guy called Rutger Redmond, Called, called human kindness. And it's an analysis of psychological studies on human behavior that were conducted in the 50s and 60s that were systematically altered to distort what actually occurred. And one of the most famous stories that we've all heard of, for example, is a, a bunch of kids were on a school trip and they got marooned on a desert island. And apparently, They turned into this savages with head guy and then police and savagery. It was like warfare. It is totally untrue. What actually occurred when they were rescued nearly a year later was they'd set up a school, they set up a hospital, it was democratic, and they were living in harmony. And you go, what? (laughs) What? How can we have been told that they were going to revert into savagery? And another amazing example of this, which is also worth mentioning, is a journalist. It's called a, the book's called A Paradise Built in Hell. It's the journalist who looked at what happened after natural disasters. Now, natural disasters are very extraordinary because the map breaks down when there's a disaster. Well, you know, the one she looks at in some detail is the great earthquake in San Francisco in 1908. When everything broke down, there were no water, there were no lights, the houses all burned down, people were living on the streets. What happened? What happened was a utopia. People self-organized into schools and hospitals and food tents. It was a utopia, not savagery. 
So you land up going, wow, so are you telling me that our map making is a problem? Now, this is where, again, there is something interesting to point out. Our map making is how we learn from experience. Human beings, as animals, have an extraordinary ability to learn from what they've done. And that's why we've gone from being naked apes on the savannah, running around, being chased about by tigers, to running around in cars. That's how we've done it. But that mechanism, which is a map-making mechanism, is protective. It's actually paranoid. It's looking for trouble Mm. because that's how we learn from our mistakes. This is why there is no such thing as publishable good news. All we want to hear about is bad news. Right. Because our map maker wants to hear bad news. I would prefer to read about a mudslide in Alabama than read about the good thing my neighbor did across the road. Right. I'll read about that, but I won't read about that. The millions and millions and millions of daily demonstrations of human decency and kindness are not news. So we land up reading newspapers and even worse on our mobile phones and all they're full of is bad news. And so we land up going, my God, the world's going, you know, what's happening? Oh, all this stuff. This is the map maker. Seeing that again is a great wake up. You go, Oh my gosh. So I've got this advisor, this map maker who's trying to make the best of my life for me. That's very useful, but they should be an advisor to me. They shouldn't tell me what to do. If you land up being told what to do by a paranoid maiden aunt, which is pretty much what this map maker is, you'll land up, oh my God, you can't do this and you can't do that. You mustn't do this and you mustn't do that. And that's exactly the alienation and disempowerment that modernity is causing. So again, you just thought, wow, if I could address this, it would make a difference. It would. How do you raise your kids? I know they're older. But how do you raise them well, with that? I've, of course, inculcated this into them. My kids, most of it, they ignore. But maybe not. I don't know. It's got it. The one thing I did do, which I'm proud of, there is a, a wonderful little prayer. Well, almost a prayer. It's called the Four Immeasurable Thoughts. I don't know if you've ever heard it. It goes, No, I haven't. May all beings be happy. May all beings avoid suffering. May all beings have the happiness that's free from suffering. May I treat all beings with an open heart, free from attachment, aversion, and indifference. Hmm. Every night we said that together. You did? I used to read from bedside. Like I read to them for hours. I read the whole of Narnia and the whole of Harry Potter. and So I read to them really a lot. I mean, maybe an hour a night. And at the end, we would do this. And honestly, I think it's the best thing I did for my kids because that. that aspirational prayer is deep. I really do want all beings to be happy. I'm not a saint. I'm just a normal person. If I fell over on the street, a complete stranger is going to pick out their hand and lift me up. It is not because I'm special. We all want everyone to be happy. We all want people to avoid suffering. That's why charity is so universal. You know, in every culture of the world, if someone is suffering, someone will help. But then we get the deep thing. 
I would like all beings to have the happiness that's free from suffering. Now, there's only one happiness that's free from suffering. That's the happiness in someone else's success. If you're happy in your own success, things come and go. So you can be successful for a bit, but in the end, it'll go wrong. So that's never going to be free from suffering. But the suffering for the happiness for someone else's success is completely free of charge. You're never ever going to suffer if you merely wish other people well. So the happiness that's free from suffering is a profound insight into humanity, which leads to the last, treating everyone with an open heart, free from wanting anything, wanting to run away from anything, or living with your eyes closed. Now, that last thing is a direct reference to meditation. Because the map is made of three things. It's made of things you want, things you don't want, and things that you couldn't care about. Because the map maker's just trying to make you safe. It's got no other ambitions. Now, it's useful to have an advisor like that. That's not a bad advisor. But you don't want to live your life like that. If you lived your life like that, it'd be a terrible life. And yet, a lot of us are living exactly like that. That is the criteria we live by. So we have a, what's ironically called a career. Now, a career, very interesting word. You know, a car, career is out of control. It's actually huh. a term to be out of control. We'd, I had a career in business. Oh, so you spent your entire life working for someone else about something you didn't care about. Was that it? You know, literally like that. And the career that we land up in, which is normally an accident of our education and background, is going to be comprised of things you want, things you don't, and things you don't care about. That's it. Now, if you haven't recovered your humanity, which is totally different from a career, and said, okay, my career path is an advisor. It's a good thing to have. I'm glad I've got it. But there's more to me, and that more to me is me. It's not because I'm anything. It's not because I did anything. It's actually me. And that is what meditation allows you to discover. Your actual sense. In the Asian tradition, it's called the heart mind. It's not a sentimental thing. It's actually realizing that your center is embodied. You have a right to be here. You're not here because you've got a job to do. You've got to earn your keep, all this language. There's no, you have a right to be here. You are a human being. Just like your cat has a right to be here. Your dog has a right to be here. The trees have a right to be here. All the good things in life that you want to support come from the basic recognition that you have a right to be here in a world full of other beings. Now, there's an amazing letter. I'm sure you've read it. The letter of Chief Seattle. I am from the Seattle. American, the, oh, the American government in the 1850s wanted to buy Chief Seattle's land. And they made him a big check. And he returned the check with a letter. And he said, guys, I don't own the land. I can't sell you the land, because I don't own it. This what he was asking. It's incomprehensible. Now, that's the decency of being a human being. 
and realizing that we have a right to be here, as do other beings and the natural world. And it all flows from that. And our technology is not an enemy. What is the enemy is the unfortunate ignorance of those who wield it. What are they ignorant of? They're ignorant of the world map they're making. And consequently, they use the technology badly. And the more powerful it gets, the more scary it gets, because if you have children with bombs, it's not going to end well. And we're going down that road steadily. And so again, you go, wow, I want people to meditate. You know, I, I don't care. It's not making a religious statement. It's not making any kind of statement other than just, hey, have a look at how you're making the world. This is physiology. This is not fantasy. You can actually demonstrate that we make the world in this way. We know it's stereo sound, you know, binocular vision. We, we know that we make the world in this way. It's just we never actually do anything about it. It's all very well for scientists to say, yes, this is how the brain works. What are we going to do about it? And meditation is a doing. It's about actually addressing our circumstance directly. And it is simple. Now, most of the Asian meditation traditions were made by monks and nuns. They're full-time religious people. They don't have a job. Their job is to meditate. Mm -hmm. Surprisingly, the books we've got all say, oh, meditate for an hour, meditate for three hours, meditate for eight hours, because that's their job. Right. We are not in that position. I'm not a monk. You're not a nun. Hey, we need to work out what we're actually doing here. And if you pare it down, you find that very short periods of concentrated attention will yield big results. I, you can get the experience that meditation can offer in a very short time. And this is where another issue becomes important. If I was to say, this is a clock. Where is it? There. This is a clock. Okay. You can see it. Right. Give it to you. You could hold it. Very soon, you'd have the referent for a clock. But if I say to you, I want to tell you about the calm state, I've got nothing to show you. So how am I going to explain to you what the calm state is? And this is where so many misconceptions about meditation arise. Yes. Oh, I love that. Yes. So now I'll give you another example of a piece of chocolate. Maybe you've never tasted chocolate. I say, we've got this brown thing. You can see it. It's a bit sweet. It's sticky. Melts in your mouth. Nice taste. None of that tells you anything about chocolate. Literally, I could write a book about chocolate and you wouldn't know what to give you the chocolate. Oh, I know it. So this book of mine is an attempt to take the key elements of meditation, explain them really simply, and say to people, just do that for three minutes, because that's that word. Then at the end of the seven days, you say, okay, got that word. Now we're going to get this one. And the key and the really important are the first two chapters, really. I should give my book away, but it's really true. The first two chapters are the really important ones. Because what they do is the first chapter talks about concentrate. Every parent has been told, concentrate. I mean, every kid's been told by their parent, right. concentrate, concentrate. That's called adverting. We learn to go and focus on one thing very 
tightly. It's where the word advertising comes from because it captures our attention. Right. Problem is, adverting is brittle. That's to say, you concentrate on one thing, and then thoughts come, sounds come, and boop, you're concentrating on that. You're concentrating on this. You're concentrating on that. And anybody who starts with a simple exercise of concentration very soon realizes, yes, concentration is brittle. Now, many people who say, I tried meditation and I, it wasn't for me. That's not how they put it. It wasn't for me. What they've done is they've just got that far and they've thought, well, I can't do this. Too difficult. Other people say, oh, thoughts are my enemy. In meditation, we have to stop thinking. This is another idea you get. And some people literally go into darkened rooms with no sound and sit there trying to be thought free as if somehow this is a meditation goal. This is because they haven't learned the next bit. And the next bit is the difference between adverting concentration and what's called savoring concentration. This is a huge gift of the Asian meditation traditions. They worked out there were two bits to concentration. So you advert to an object and then you savor it. The classic metaphor is you take a cup of coffee to your lips and you drink and taste the coffee. Now, savoring technically is called vikara, makes your meditation stable. Because when you savor an experience, it's no longer being pulled this way and that. If something happens, you merely incorporate it into your concentration. So the book goes on to try and give experience of savoring. And what we use is a bell. So you ring a bell, that's adverting, captures your attention. Then you listen to it fade. Now, listening to it fade is savoring. And as you develop this skill, just for a few minutes a day, you start getting the hang of it. Now, once you approach meditation from the perspective of savoring, you move in a direction that's very interesting. You become what you could call a craftsman of your own perception. You're engaging with your five sense gates, thoughts and imaginations as things to savor. Now, this totally alters life. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, there is a whole new thing. It's not in the world. It is the world. Something huge has happened. Right. I went through all your, all the, every week. I know you go seven days, you don't look ahead. And what do you do seven days? I did the first two weeks. I've had the book for like over a month because we were supposed to do this interview. Yeah. yeah. But when I, yes, I did cheat. Before I today, because I was, I wanted to understand more. <laughs> but um, you talk about smiling. I've never heard that before. I've open eyes, looking out the window. When you focus on something and it's like the ball. So I was doing all of those things and try the movement, it gets bigger yeah. and then it yeah, comes. Yeah. But these are all exercises designed to exemplify important elements of the meditation journey so that the reader of the book gets the experience. Because at the end of reading this book and going through the 14 weeks and doing your three minutes a day, I'm pretty confident that anyone who did that would land up at the end going, I know what meditation is. I've got Mm. the actual experience. I actually know what meditation is. They may then decide they want to use that meditation to develop all kinds of other 
capacities. That's entirely possible. Meditation is a get this basic level of meditation is the gateway to inner exploration. Or they may decide, no, I just want to have the capacity to take a moment of the day, drop what I'm doing and let the day go by just for a moment. And in that moment, you recapture the throne of your being and you are a human being in a world, not locked onto a task where everything is being like this reflexively. Right. Reflexive. Just that capacity is transformative. Or you may decide, I want to write my journal and be able to engage my journal more deeply. Or maybe you want to paint. Or what it, there are so many skills. Right. And you look at performers. Now, performers are intensely interesting. There is an intuition in modernity that we've got something wrong. And one of the symptoms is that performers who were Going back a few hundred years, kind of like craftsmen, basically. You know, you bring on the actors. You know, they do right. very important. Now they're heads of state, literally comedians who are heads of state. What's happened? It's because there is this intuition that somehow we're getting disconnected. Now, what do performers do? Performers enter their performance totally. And when someone does that, it is magical. Right. They've almost disappeared, but they haven't disappeared. They've become fully embodied in their performance. Sports people, same thing. Mm-hmm. When you see a sportsman truly enter, it's like magical. You, you're locked onto it. What are you locking onto? You're locking onto the totality of being. Now, the totality of being is not a display. The totality of being is entering into action totally. Now, that capacity is within us all. We're not merely onlookers. We can enter. But to do so, we have to understand how this works. Right. And so, again, meditation is a path to become this craftsman who can drop into their perception totally. Right. You know, I when right. I, let's think of that, and I think of when we were talking about the rowing and why my girls love rowing so much, My, I'll, I'll see... She was getting her essays ready for college and it's about the rowing and how it's just like this feeling of the cutting in the water and the, and I know that's, she's in a meditative state yes, in that, it's that boat. Unity, that unity yes. of the all eight people rowing to get, absolutely. It's yeah. And I know that's what that magic feeling that she has in that boat or they both have, but thinking of that and I, and I know I've done sports and, and I've watched obviously, you know, sports, but when you, even when you're watching it, like you were saying, like you're, you get into that, you're so you're watching a movie and you're watching that person become that, yeah. that person, you know, you're just, you're in there, you know, it, it is like you're looking at the screen and thinking, you know, that person's really there. But you know, what's so interesting about this is when you enter a performance totally, or when you see someone enter a performance, there's no you and them. Right. You're completely in. That's the truth. The map that we make has a knower and a known. There's a person looking and there's something they're looking at, but that's a map. Right. In actuality, there is neither knower nor known. It's just knowing totally together. What does that look like? Like knowing. And I look at 
you know, being in the present moment always. Like I'm, that's a common word of my yes, life. Yes, we say be in the present or be here now. Unfortunately, the term present and the term here are both map references. Enter totally, there's no time. And there's no here either. You're right. just in knowing. In now, we have amazing words for this in English. English is an amazing language. One is intuition or in tuition. We're in something that we're being taught. Another one is understanding mm. or standing under. Standing under. Oh, my gosh. These words are magical words. And they're talking about this state of knowing where we've overcome our reactivity, we've trained ourselves, and then we enter the present for real, which is totally eternal. There is no time in the embodied moment. It is timeless. And that state is available to us all, and it is healing itself. And what you realize is, as I said earlier, you belong. You're not an onlooker. You're not having to earn your keep. You're not here because of someone else's say-so. You belong. And in that belonging, you feel such goodwill for both Mm -hmm. yourself and for everyone else. Everyone else belongs too. Why do you want to steal from them? What are you doing? You're like, what? how crazy is that? And that's where decency arises from. It's that basic intuition. So to me, this is a panacea of a very real type. And the key is that you know what you're doing. Unfortunately, as I said, because the traditions of this great secret have come to us in foreign languages, and often ancient languages, it's hard to translate them well. So again, being able to bring them forward and express them in the language of cognitive psychology and with the insights of science is valuable because we live in a technological world where this is how people are educated. But the surprising thing is these are capacities that aren't hard to get. It's not difficult. It's just that so often we misunderstand what it is we're trying to do and land up doing something which is completely off the point like trying to have your thoughts, for example. And so learning to be engaged, responsive, but not reactive, is quite literally the fruit of meditation. And that is the foundation stone, as I said, for every other thing. Right. So when you, I think of you having the Dharma College in in Berkeley, what is the, besides meditation, what do you teach there? Yeah, yeah. Dharma College has five, areas. So we have learning, we have, sorry, living, which is basically life skills like meditation or life skills like learning how to be less stressed. Then we have working, we have business development courses, basically, again, trying to find meaning and not be alienated in work. And then we have wellness about self-care. And then that all leads, and we, it's like a tree, really, those are the roots. Then that leads into a trunk, And we call the trunk understanding. And understanding is understanding, standing under our world map, learning how we make the world map, what the world map contains, and how we can stand under it. And when we do that and are successful in standing under it, we discover we are wise. We have radiant knowing as a birthright. It's normally called, oh, that's common sense. 
But actually, common sense is a quite amazing faculty. It's the faculty that a four-year-old child has when they point at daddy and say, Daddy, why do you do that? And look what God is saying. <laughs> it's that capacity that young people <laughs> have to ask that question. <laughs> you know, you don't want them to ask. That's common sense. It's completely innate. And then we have a final sort of flowering into courses on wisdom where we encourage people to develop that capacity and express it and bring back to the college all that, like only today I was talking to one of our faculty about the transcendental movement in America, the poets, the Whitman, etc., and realizing that this is what they were talking about too. And so we want to start bringing that back. So we're trying to bring back to the college this idea that radiant knowing lies at the heart of all our endeavors. There is no such thing as an absolute language based in logic. It does not exist and it cannot exist. And in fact, this was proven mathematically by a logician called Gottfried Frager in the 1930s. Mm. So the idea that some computer program is going to make scientific discoveries is so nonsensical. And it comes because of a misunderstanding of our innate intelligence. And once we develop our innate intelligence, we have what is called knowledgeability. We're able to engage even in novel topics and learn from them. Our humanity is returned to us. We suddenly realize that we, we've come back home in a very real way. And you know, there are lots of fairy tales like this. This is the fairy tale of the vizier who takes over the throne of the sultan and, you know, kind of bewitches him. So the sultan's asleep and then the sultan awakens and goes, you know, who are you and why are you, why are you running my kingdom like that? Or in Lord of the Rings, where, you know, the king of Rohan is asleep on his throne and there's this evil advisor who's taken over. This is all an intuition of this fact, hmm. that our humanity is radiant, it is authentic, and it is here. The regime that we use to making the map is mechanical. It's powerful without question. It is useful without question, but it is essentially mechanical. And the reason I say that is it's based in the past. It's essentially taking what we knew and applying it to the present. The term we use, and again, this is a magical word, we use the term in English, recognition. We say, I recognize you. What do you mean, recognition? You mean cognize again? Yes, exactly. Cognize again. What we're doing is we take a cognition, we recall the previous example, and we recognize it. That's exactly what we're doing. That's mechanical. And that's why Google and artificial intelligence and all that stuff knows if they put something in, it's going to come out. That's how advertising works. It's mechanical. But that's not who we are. We are radiant wisdom, embodied totally. And once we get there, we realize that this mechanical thing is a useful advisor. You could say it's an ornament. It becomes a friend, actually. It's, it's a friend. It's just no longer controlling our lives as if it knows everything, because it doesn't. You can make decisions which are free of the reactive advice of what you did before. And people say, when you do that, A, oh, you've become creative. 
And B, oh, you've become wise. And what do we mean when we say someone's wise? It means when things happen, they don't immediately react like they did before. They have time and they go, well, okay, that happened. Maybe it's one like, like this. Maybe it's like that. Maybe I should do this. They have the freedom. Decisions. All of this goes back to this fundamental life skill of meditation. Right. Oh, I love that. We are at the end here, Richard. I've loved this. You know, when I think of what you're doing and where the world's going and that, you know, when, like for you to just write a book on meditation, you know, I feel like it's definitely more of a, you know, the meditation is more common than it was even, I would say, 10 years ago. You know, it's more of a, we, we talk about that a lot, especially on this podcast. But when you think of, you know, when you have your children or you've passed away and your kids are your age, what, how, what kind of life are they going to be living? Are they going to, is it going to be like, for, how do you see the world? If I was my kids, I would be worried for my future because all they see is disruption. They have been brought up in disruption after disruption after disruption. Remember, these kids were born in 2002 and 2004. These last 20 years have been pretty pretty rocky. And you say to them, you know, oh, you should get a professional career or something. And then you think, uh, in what exactly? (laughs) It's like... Yeah, well, that's where I'm at too. Yeah, with my kids. What they need is to have a grounding in themselves. Not selfishly. And this is where, again, there's a lot of misunderstandings. It's not being selfish. It's merely saying, look, always the world that you see is your own production. You need to understand this, which means that when you're disheartened, you can always fall back on your own resource and find another way. There will be another way. That's the advice I try to give them. Because honestly, I look at the world. When I was brought up in the 1960s and 70s, Everybody got a job. You weren't got a good degree. You'd get a job. I didn't even bother. I didn't even try for the first five years. There was no need. Right. It's like, you've got to work. You've got to do this. There's all this stress. And indeed, one of the things we're trying to do at Dharma College, Dharma Dash College, by the way, look it up on the internet, is we're trying to develop courses for graduating students. Because Mm -hmm. students go in to college full of ideals and things they want to do to change the world. And then as they come out of college, There's no advice given to them about how they might live a good life. It's completely absent. And they land up working for big companies. And one thing I learned as the chief executive of a company myself is how often it is that very nice people work for companies that do awful things. Do you think, what? Aren't they all demons? No, they're (laughs) all. And yet somehow the company does this terrible stuff. How is that possible? explaining to people how this works is something that's completely absent in our university curriculum. And it comes back to a Buddhist concept called right livelihood. We've lost contact with this idea of right livelihood. It was actually part of the noble eightfold path of the Buddha, right livelihood. And, you know, encouraging people to live a right livelihood life, which means they have to understand how they're going to make a living and bring up their kids and all of that, but not do so in and in the same time, sacrifice everything they believed in. And that's sad to see that happen. So those are the two things I believe in. And, you know, there's a free app with this book, by the way. So people can put it on their phone. And I don't want people to sit on a cushion. I don't want people to sit in front of a statue. I wish there were statues of the Buddha cleaning his teeth. 
exactly. <laughs> because the idea that Buddha meditated all the time is untrue. He did not. He was actually meditated probably 10 minutes a day. He was not a big meditator. It simply isn't true. You can see in the histories. What we need to do is bring these skills into our lives with our eyes open, our ears open, our senses open to respond calmly rather than react. That's the key. And once we do that in the world, our lives change. Everything changes. Mm -hmm. It's like one thing changes all. And it's because if you can break cognition and recognition, if you can break the reflex that immediately produces recognition and stay in cognition, Mm -hmm. so recognition becomes an option, not a requirement, suddenly... Every experience you have changes because all your experiences come through the five senses and thoughts and imaginations. So if you live in cognition rather than recognition, everything changes. Yeah. Everything. Amen. Why it's not just a life skill, it's fundamental to be a human being. I really, that's important to me. Like my relationship with my husband, parenting, people always come across to me and like, you're so calm and... You're so non-reactive. And I said, well, I've, I've learned, you know, I always say it's a mirror. It's just an awareness of, you know, what that feels like to just be in a non-reactive being in that place of like you talked about this whole hour is like amazing. And I've learned so much from you and everyone's going to be buying this book because it's so people make it too hard, you know, and it's, or they look at it as, that's so far away from who I am. I can't imagine living my life like that. Because they make it a goal, a goal in the world. It's a goal in the world, but the world is the TV screen. Right. Look for Cary Grant in the TV screen. He's not there. And so people say, oh, I want to get enlightened or I want to get liberated or whatever the language is that they've read about what meditation is about. It's in the world. That's an idea. It's not real. Right. And we have to sort of forget all of that and go right back to, okay, what is real? Well, what is real is what you see, what you smell, what you taste, what you touch, what you feel, and what you think. That's it. The rest is an inference yeah. based oh. on that, on those six things. It's so simple. It's like crazy simple. And you think, surely I learned about that somewhere. <laughs> no, <laughs> unfortunately not. <laughs> You know, that's it. And our human, and you're a beautiful person. You really are. It's lovely to talk to you because your humanity is present. You didn't make it. You are it. You're a human right. being. I do the greatest compliment you can be paid is to be called a human being. Hmm. It's something that the American Indians used to do. They used to say, oh, he's a human being. Most of us are just robots with plans. You know? right. Divisive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you find a human being, they don't really have a plan. Right. They're like, that's nice. And then okay. things they don't do them. But that's, just, that's not really the, the point. And this is it. And it's that, it's that, unfortunately, our culture, the backdrop to it, the spiritual backdrop to it is all based in sin and suffering and making up and all kinds of ideas, which when you begin to analyze them closely, you realize that they're a little bit manipulated as ideas. Mm-hmm. And to me, basic human goodness is a fact. It's not a feature, it's a fact. You can actually prove it. And when you do, 
You suddenly go, wow, so people are basically decent. Yes, society is basically good. Mm -hmm. We are all, you know, they're bad people. I'm not suggesting they're not bad people. But on the other hand, society is basically good. And the number of times I've fallen down and a total stranger has picked me up for no reason. They, They didn't have to. They could have walked past, but they don't. People are decent. And the decency of common folk is something that I think is extraordinary and can't be overlooked enough. It's just our advisor is only looking for bad news. Consequently, none of that gets in the newspaper. Otherwise, the newspaper would be a thousand pages of good news and one page of bad news. Right. But as it is, those thousand, those 999 pages don't get, get printed. Just the one page gets printed. And that's mm-hmm. why I think the world's coming to an end. Coming <laughs> to an end. And I, you know, I, I travel a lot. I go to India a lot. I go around the world. I, I meet nice people. And, you know, even people with nothing are friendly. Mm-hmm. So like, that's just the default. <laughs> it's not like, you know, you have to train them or something. And again, it's shock because. Right. You know, we're also goal-orientated. We've got to do stuff. And of course, our educational system, with its appalling grading, the mm-hmm. relentless. Oh, don't. I think, what are we doing to our children? We're grading them from the age of seven right the way through. And not so, you know, I say to my kids, what interests you? Mm-hmm. Say, what will get me a good grade? Right. Oh, so you, I mean, we could do a whole podcast on that. Oh, I'm in that. I've been in that. And yet that's the reality because if they don't get good grades, they don't get good universities, et cetera, et cetera, it knocks on. Right. So, you know, that's again, you think, what's gone wrong here? Why are we allowing such mechanical ideas to educate our kids? That's got to be wrong. Yeah. You know, so to me, there's a, there are many, many, it's like a hydra, this problem, but it all has one root cause, which is reactivity, reflexive reactivity. That's where it comes from. And even people who were so called evil, when you look at their life history time and time again, you see where the reactivity is coming from. You actually start feeling sorry for them because what the hell it is. To oh. be your entire life doing people down. Yes. As if somehow oh. that's going to be a good thing for you. It's like, right. Oh, oh, I know. And so, you know, you realize compassionate, even I will treat everyone with an open heart, free from attachment, aversion, or indifference. That is a great moral. Mm-hmm. Yet, because mm-hmm. if that, your human decency has a chance to shine. To me, that's, that's it. I love it. Thank you. So we can buy your book on Amazon. Go to your website, richarddixie.com. Yes, richarddixie.com. Yeah, <laughs> one word, by the way. D-I-X-E-Y. Okay. I'm, I'm an E-Y. D- <laughs> Richard with two Ds. Richard Dixie. So it's got two Ds in the middle of it. Dot com. And there's all the reviews of the book and all that stuff. And how to yeah, buy. so good. And the app that they can um, yeah, download. You can go on the website and download the app if you don't want to read the book. Yeah. All the app has is the exercises. Honestly, without a little bit of explanation, the exercises are just experiences. Right. You could the experiences, but if you don't really know what they're for, mm-hmm. you might get there. You might well find it works for you anyway. But once you know what they're for, then they're very precise. And that's why the three-minute thing works. If you do anything for three minutes, it builds up. There's a great Latin motto I like. 
It says, water cuts through stone, not by cutting hard, but by cutting often. Mm-hmm. Very good. So That's drip, good. just like a little drip. But you know what you're doing. So one of the reasons I don't particularly like the one-hour meditation is because most of us can't sustain concentration over that kind of period. So we land up sleeping on our cushions, daydreaming, whatever, fidgeting, fighting the meditation. That's pointless. Don't bother. Take three minutes, do it well. Do it every day. That'll build up, drip, drip, and you'll find over time, gosh, I'm beginning to understand what this is. And that's why the three-minute thing, I think, is worth a thought. People say, well, it can't be possible. You can't do anything in three minutes. Yes, you can. Yeah. Actually, a little and often is the best way to learn anything. Mm-hmm. And so to me, I just want to say the contract is simple. I'll explain everything. You just do three minutes a day. And if something doesn't work, you write to me on that website. It's got a contact page and I will respond to you because I want people to get this taste of chocolate. Mm-hmm. What's tasted the chocolate? I say, oh, I know what chocolate. Then you can have praline chocolate, sweet chocolate, milk chocolate, yeah, chocolate you want. <laughs> the chocolate taste. Oh, I've, I've done it. That's what I wanted to give you, the chocolate taste. <laughs> and then it becomes part of your reality. Uh-huh. And that's another one that's on the way to humanity. You know, it's like, right. <laughs> so that mission, that's my little mission, the last, last bit of my life while I'm still around, is to do that. And hopefully people will. That's all I want. I'd almost like to give a money back guarantee, but I can't do that. <laughs> I'm not publishing the book. Otherwise, right. I probably would. Because to me, it's such a valuable thing. If millions of people were just doing three minutes of meditation a day, we would be in a different world. Oh, we would be in such a different world, Richard. <laughs> yeah, people talk about world poverty and, you know, the arms race and global warming. Yeah, yeah, okay. That's all good. We need to fix them all. Root cause. Meditate three minutes a day. Yeah. The rest of it will come along. I love it. Thank you so much. It was so fun meeting you. Me too. I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Uncover Your Magic podcast today. If you are inspired by what you heard today, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, Please subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. If you would like to connect with me with any questions, comments, or feedback, please contact me at the Uncover Your Magic website. Thank you so much for listening, and don't forget, always look for the magic.